So here now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 11th chapter, the first four verses. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And may the Lord continue to bless our understanding of this passage. We started it last week, finishing it this week. May he uh, truly illuminate us to the language that, that is, is in our redeemed souls that really, really wants to get out when we read words like this. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we continue to read these last three um, petitions and, and, and then put it in its context before that, Lord, we, we ask that even though we've split this, or I've split this message in two, that um, the train of thought that we established uh, will, will be there. Those who weren't here last week, that we, they would be able to pick up on that train of thought and that we could really truly see that this is a, a very concise prayer, a model prayer, but a prayer that glorifies you from start to finish. And may we do that as we study these words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, as those of you who were here last week know, I, I had to split this sermon um, because it just kind of took on a life of its own, and uh, it, it was just too long. And, and when I do that, the downside of that is that it's, it's, you, there's a week in between when we start the message and, and end it, and there's a train of thought that most sermons, we, at least we try to have a fluid train of thought throughout it, so that's been interrupted. So. Um, the, the only way to get it back is a little bit of repetition, a little bit of redundancy, so you'll please forgive me for that. I'm not going to go into any great detail. If you weren't here last week, it would definitely behoove you to jump online. The sermon from last week is already up there and to catch up as far as the foundation that I'm just going to barely touch on this morning. Now, there are basically three things that are, are sort of on the table right now. First of all, of course, is prayer. But, but underlying that is the idea of sanctification. That, that is what Luke is presenting us with, the process whereby we become more Christ-like. And then very specifically, the means to that sanctification, the means of grace, and we'll talk about that in, in a moment. Now, the, the, the point that I'm trying to make, or I've been trying, I made it last week, I'm going to make it again this week, is that our redeemed soul, this is definitely directed at Christians, believers who have given their hearts to Jesus Christ. The prayers that we're going to talk about are prayers for disciples, and, and that's a, a, an important place to start. But I, 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 I'm making the point that our redeemed souls have a knowledge and actually a prayer language that our fallen minds need to catch up with. Um, we need to learn this, and that is part of the process of sanctification. Now, how else do you explain this particular passage? Because a disciple asks Jesus to teach him how to pray. And Jesus responds with 38 words in the Greek. That's an incredibly short prayer uh, and, 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 and very concise. But then Jesus, in his modeling to us of a life bathed with prayer, was constantly praying to his Father and sometimes would pray all night long. So how do you take a 38-word model and turn it into eight hours worth of intense praying to the Father? Well, there's got to be a language that, that these words just simply unleash and that a language that in our fallenness we, doesn't come naturally to us. We need to learn. 
And then Jesus also says, if we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, where he also gave us a model prayer, not the exact same one, but um, a little bit more filled out. We recited it just a few minutes ago. Before he gave that prayer, this is what he told his disciples or those listening to him. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Well, if he knows what we need before we ask him, and if he's sovereign, then is there actually a value in prayer? Well, that's the very point. There is a tremendous value in prayer when we start talking about our relationship with God, our understanding of God, our own sanctification. Um, I pointed this out last week. Prayer is a very interesting exercise, isn't it, when you think about it? Because prayer is a conversation between two beings. One of those beings, you and I, we're sinful, we are finite, we are mortal, and we are nescient. That just simply means we're clueless about what's going to happen. We don't really have a grasp of everything. And we are entering into a conversation with a perfectly holy, sinless being who is immortal, infinite, and omniscient. Now, when we enter into that conversation, quite often we're just kind of stuck in the present. We, we have no clue what's going to happen in the future. He does. We are very fuzzy about what's happened in the past. He knows it completely and he knows the importance and the significance of it. And we tend to focus on the present and our present needs. Well, he already knows what those needs are. And so I think what Jesus is telling us with this very succinct prayer is that there is a language that when you are redeemed, when you are saved, when you are born again, the soul that you are given doesn't belong to you. It's his. He paid for it. He bought it. It's a new creation in Christ. And that soul has a much better idea of the language of heaven than your fallen body and mind does. And so therefore, through the process of sanctification, we need to learn the language of prayer. Now, towards that end, we have been presented in Luke two of the means whereby that sanctification comes about. We call them the means of grace. Now, in a reformed sense, um, the means of grace are not the means by which we are saved, but they are the means by which we are sanctified, by which we become Christ-like in our nature. Going back a little bit, there's a lot of context to this story, but I'm not going to give it because it would take too much time. But I do want to take you back to Martha's house because something very important happened there and a very important image was given to us. Martha is serving a group of people, Jesus included, and she is um, fussing about. I mean, obviously it was a meal because that's the way she was serving. So she is concentrating on the bread that perishes, the bread that will be eaten, it'll pass through the body, it'll be burned off in energy, and then the next day and the next day and the next day it has to be done all over again. And she's angry because Mary, her sister, is not helping her but rather sitting at the feet of Jesus fixated on his words. Oh, that's such an important image for us, brothers and sisters. Mary fixated on the words of Jesus because Jesus himself says, this is the one thing that is necessary. This is the better portion and this will never be taken away from her. You are focusing on the bread that perishes. She is focusing on the bread that brings eternal life. And so therefore, our first image of the morning, our first image of sanctification, our first image of the means of grace is Mary at the feet of Jesus hanging on every word because that is the means of grace that we are given. We don't have Jesus in front of us, but we do have his word. So to be focused on the word, that's where you're going to learn your language of prayer, folks. It is scattered throughout this book. When, when the, the, the prayer language comes out from just a word like Father, one word, well, your heart just takes off. Because if you're fully aware of what Scripture is stating about that and the privilege that that is and the implications of that, well, there's a whole new language that just comes flowing out from a single articulated word. And so that's the first of these, of, of these great means of grace. Now, last week, we focused on another image. And for that, we're going to get into our text. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to run through these first two verses. Put your tennis shoes on because we're going to fly through them. 
because I'm going to slow down when we hit the third verse, but uh, we have to set some kind of, of, a, of a train of thought. And what Jesus says in these first two verses is so hugely significant. So let's take a look at that text now. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. Now, we talked a lot about the vagueness that Luke has taken on, the ambiguity of this. He doesn't tell us where they're praying. And the reason for that is that what is so important is our second major image of the morning. And that is Jesus, the man, praying. Jesus prayed all during his ministry. It was a very important part of what he did. Luke carries those prayers more so than the other Gospels. There's a focus in Luke on Jesus praying. So the image of Jesus, and we pull one particular verse out, one particular segment out of Luke 6. When Jesus was about to select his 12 apostles, this is what we read. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray and all night long long he continued to pray to God that's our image that's our image number two of the means of grace Jesus on his knees on his face praying to his father all night long what would he what was he talking about if the model prayer that he gives us is 38 words long how did he fill an entire evening worth of prayer but that's the image of sanctification there is so much value in prayer it's a means of grace it is a mean we come to know, a means by which we come to know the father better a relationship is formed and intimacy is formed and all of that is brought out about that prayer now when Jesus is praying in this picture a disciple asks him would you please show us how to pray, as John the Baptist told his disciples. Now, I'm not going to go into it, but what he's referring to there is that every rabbi sort of had a different take on prayer, a different way that you would pray that would identify you with that rabbinic school. And so the man says, well, show us how the, 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 the ones who follow Christ pray. And Jesus gives them 38 words. Uh, So there's definitely some language that's wrapped up in that that is going to have to fill in the empty places. And I hope that last week especially, and if you didn't get it last week, that you will this week, you'll understand that there's a whole language that your heart knows, that your redeemed soul knows, that your mind needs to learn. Well, anyway, from there, he went into these the first two petitions. But first of all, we focused on the address that he starts out. It's an address that goes with the first petition, but it could go with all of them, where he simply refers to God as Father. And we talked about that. That's unique to Jesus. In the Old Testament, you see God referenced as Father, but you don't see him addressed as Father. Jesus, from the very first words that we have in the gospel when he's 12 years old in the temple, and the very last words when he's hanging on the cross just before he dies, refers to God as his Father. Okay, did you not know that I would be about my father's business? And father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Throughout his entire ministry, Jesus constantly talked about God as his father and addressed God as his father. Well, to a degree, that's to be expected, right? Because he is indeed the second member of the Godhead incarnate in human flesh. So he has every right to call God his father. But what is so amazing about this is he gives that right to the likes of us. Fallen, wretched, sinful people. Not only in Matthew does he say, our father, not my father, but our father. But here in Luke, he doesn't even include the our. It's unadorned. It's nothing between us and the father. It is an intimate address that we refer to God as the father who loves us and cares for us and and, and has brought us out out of darkness. And so the, 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 the privilege is a great one to call him father. And also, brothers and sisters, I repeat that this is not a privilege that exists outside of Jesus Christ. The reason that we can call God father is because we are adopted as sons and daughters of God through the cross work of Jesus Christ bearing his righteousness. Without that... This relationship is not one of loving closeness, but one 
of enmity as it brings about judgment. Well, anyway, that's the beginning. We talked about the, the meaning of Father. And then the first of these great um, uh, 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 petitions, hallowed be your name. It's like we go from the quintessential statement of eminence, God with us, to the quintessential statement of transcendence, hallowed be thy name. That's a verb. It means to make holy or to make sacred, to sanctify it. Obviously, Jesus is not telling us to pray to God and tell God you need to be sanctified because he's already perfect in his holiness, infinite in his sacredness and sanctification. Basically, what this is, is for the one who is praying to pray that may your name be sanctified, hallowed, holy to me. May I understand the one that I am addressing, the most amazing paradox, the one I just called Father, is now the one who is the holy creator of the universe. That's an amazing um, uh, 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 dynamic right there. Well, then we talked about that word name, that when we talk about the name of God, we're not just talking about a title by which we refer to him, that all wrapped up in the name of God is the totality of his essence. And we talked about his great attributes, both the communicable attributes, attributes like love or compassion or mercy or justice, things that we have been been communicated to us, but that he has in an infinite and perfect um, uh, quantity, but also the non-communicable attributes like his omnipotence, omniscience, his sovereignty, his eternality, his infinity, his immutability. All of these define who God is. So when we go before God and we say, hallowed be your name, which you, by the way, do every Sunday when you repeat that prayer, okay? When we say that, it is, may you be hallowed in my heart. May you be hallowed in my life. May the totality of who you are drive me to my knees to recognize that you are the great God of the universe. You're holy, you're infinite, you're omnipotent, you're eternal, and all of those things. And you have given me the privilege to stand before you in reverence. So it's not just a personal reverence. It is also a reverence that we would pray that God would extend to the whole world. I mean, there's, there's so much here that we just, I, I don't have time to go back over. I really do encourage you to listen to that sermon because wrapped up in this, wrapped up in the presentation, that the prayer for holiness is what we learned earlier with the lawyer just before we saw the, the parable of the, uh, of the Good Samaritan where he informed us that the greatest of the commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul and strength and to love those who he loves in that sense. And, and, and we notice that that was sort of a summation of the Ten Commandments. So when you say that prayer, when you make that petition, hallowed be your name, you are standing before a holy God and you're saying, may you be holy in my life. May I love you with my heart, soul, my strength, and my mind. May I never, ever um, put another God before you. May I never, ever have a graven image that I worship, whether it is something I hold in my hand or money or career or even good things like family. May nothing ever come between me and you. May I never defile your name as is so often done, trampled in this culture. And may I do something that people even within the church have completely forgotten. And that is to sanctify the day that you have set aside for me to worship you that entire day. That is what you're saying. That's the language of prayer. That is what is unleashed. That is what your redeemed heart knows. But your fallen mind needs to learn as we learn how to pray to the infinite God. Well, then we went to the second of those great um, petitions, your kingdom come. Very simple, but kingdom, we talked about that's a very 
vast subject, one that we cannot possibly uh, deal with. Can't even really even scratch the surface of that. But we did point out several things. It's not just an eschatological uh, kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is here, brothers and sisters. Jesus ushered in the kingdom of heaven, and he rules as its king right now. He was coronated when he ascended to heaven. He's established his kingdom. The church is a local representation of that kingdom, but the kingdom is vast. And we prayed when that kingdom come, that we recognize that the kingdoms of this world, particularly the kingdom of Satan, it's not a dualistic situation where Satan has just as much power and control as God does, and there's this yin and yang kind of fight going on. Oh, there is a fight, and it goes on every single day, but we already know who wins. Because there is really only one kingdom, the kingdom, and God could squash Satan at any time that he wanted to. He leaves him for his own purposes and his own providence. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, what we are actually praying for is, God, can your kingdom, that pristine heavenly kingdom, where there is light, where everyone obeys you, where everyone loves you, can that kingdom permeate the darkness of this sewer that I live in? Can it live in my heart? Can it emanate from me? And can it emanate not only in me, but from my church and my community, my country, and inevitably or inevitably the world as a whole. May they have um, an understanding of your great kingdom. May light come into the darkness, even as John said in his prelude, in him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So I told you, you need your tennis shoes. We just kind of zip through that. There's a lot of important things in there to set the stage for what is about to come. But with that said, now, let's turn to the third verse, the third of these great petitions, and we'll go through this morning, and we'll see all three of these. Verse 3 simply goes like this. Give us each day our daily bread. Give us each day. Our daily bread. Let me just kind of give you a quick overview about this. Uh, some some things about this. First of all, I want you to notice the brevity of this. The whole prayer is brief, but I want you to know how much of the prayer, ten words, if you really want to know, that is dedicated to all of our needs. Okay, all of them, all of our physical needs are wrapped up in ten words. Now, I don't think that's the normal percentage in our prayers, is it? We, we don't spend just a little bit of time talking about ourselves. And the rest of the time, we're praying to God and we're glorifying Him and asking for His kingdom to come. But that's the second thing I want you to see about this. Notice the way that Jesus has ordered this prayer. It's important. Because he starts out with a statement of imminence of God, Father. Then he goes to a statement of transcendence, the holiness of God. And then he talks about the coming of the kingdom. And all of these things happen first before we get to a prayer of supplication for my own needs. And this is not just a good way to pray, brothers and sisters. This is really the priority of life. The priority of life is the glorification of God first. The relationship with God first. That's why prayer is so important. And then the, 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 the growth, the coming, the development of his kingdom. Through evangelism, through preaching, through the activities of the church. Through missions, through global diaconate. Through all of the things that we do here on this earth. That comes first. And then we ask him for the things that we need. Also notice that this is in the plural. It doesn't say, give me this day my daily bread. It's give us this day our daily bread. So we're not just praying for our own sustenance. These aren't just supplications for ourselves. In fact, you know, who, who is us, you know, that, that is referred to here? Well, the us, I think, uh, immediately is the body, the, the body of Christ, those who are within our scope and our sphere. But that is not all who's included in us. 
Because there's people all around us that are also beneficiaries of God's, what we call, common grace that he brings for everyone. And it's not just the providing of food and shelter that, of course, is all wrapped up in this, in this request for bread, but things like governments that, that God has put in place that, that hold the, uh, the boundaries around which people live. Now, a lot of people don't realize that God has blessed them and he has given them this, this common grace. Jesus makes this clear when he speaks to the devil in the desert. And it says, for he makes his sun rise on the, I'm sorry, in the Sermon on the Mount. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So therefore, it is extremely important that we ask for supplications, but it needs to be in their place. Now, let me, let, let me give you a couple of things that Jesus is not saying here. It's always kind of a good, when there's a confusion about what he's saying, let, let's, let's make sure that we understand what he's not saying. Now, I, I, I said that this is brief and that it's in his place. That is not to say that there is no place in your prayers for supplication. That is not to say that you should not ask your father for the things that you need. And in fact, Jesus did that. Jesus prayed for specific things, especially for his disciples in that high priestly prayer. He's praying for their needs. And so we go back into the Psalms and we read, especially the Psalms of David's and others. They're filled with supplications and requests for the things that we need. So the Lord is not saying that this is of no significance. In fact, I'm going to show you in a while why I think it's of great significance. But it should not be the tone of our prayers. It should not be the overriding focus of our prayers. Our prayers should bring glory to God first and glory to his kingdom and then to ask him for the things that we need to constantly ask for in that way. So I don't think that he's telling us not to pray, but by the same token, I don't think that he wants us to hide behind the statement that God knows what we need before we ask for it. And, and I've heard some people say that. Why should I ask for anything? Why should I pray to God when he already knows everything that I need? So I'm just going to go my way. That's kind of a license for laziness, if you will. Because prayer is a discipline and prayer has other things that are important. Prayer is a means of grace. Prayer is time spent with God. And, and there's a statement that is said when you spend time with your father. Oh, there's plenty of place for the prayers you pray as you're driving down the street or as you're waking up in the morning or as you're walking someplace. And then when something horrible happens and you cry out and ask God for relief for that, there are places for that. We're not talking about that now. We're talking about time uh, of spent with him as a means of grace. Where you learn, your head begins to learn what your redeemed soul already knows. And you start putting into words some of these ideas. So it's not just something for you to hide behind so that you don't spend any time with prayer. And I think thirdly, and the last thing that Jesus is not saying, is that you have some kind of list that you just kind of run down. And you know you don't engage in your own prayers. And, and, and I see that way too often, brothers and sisters. I, I, I've been in prayer groups where it was sort of mandatory. You had to set a certain amount of time uh, every week for, you know, this group prayer for within the organization. And we have, we have a prayer list, as we sometimes have here. And, and there's always those that just re- read down the prayer list, you know, and blah, 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 word for word, as, as, as if they, they, they're putting no thought into it. Now, once again, God knows what we want and need before we ask him. But that doesn't mean that you request things from him mindlessly. That you just kind of disassociate yourself from the prayers. Prayers are very personal. And so, therefore, when we turn to the Lord and ask him for the things that we need... There needs to be a, 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 an engagement that is there. And, and, and let me tell you why this is important. Specifically, the request for the things that you need. Because when you ask God for sustenance, things like food, shelter, clothes, the things that you need for existence, when you ask God for those, what does it say about where you recognize those things come from? Let's turn that around. Let's say that you never ask God for anything. 
You never, ever make any supplications for your sustenance, for any of the needs that you have. What does that say? What does that project? It may or may not be true, but what does it project? That you don't need him. That you've got this covered. Hey, listen, I'm, I'm the master of my own faith, the captain of my own ship. I provide for myself. Now, let's talk about bigger things like world peace. I, I don't need these little things because I'm in charge there. No, brothers and sisters, it, it establishes a dependency. When Jesus prayed, he made sure that we understood that the Son can do nothing without the Father. There was a human dependency on the Father. And every time you ask him for what you need, you are expressing that, Lord, I know where my good things come from. I know who provides those things for me, and it's not me. So in a sense, what you are doing is you are turning to him and giving him the recognition that you are so completely and totally dependent on him, and without him, you would have nothing. That's an important part, and that's the reason we want to ask God for the things that we need. Now, there's another aspect of that. Um, When we ask God for the things that we need, or let's put it this way, when you depend on someone for something, and in this sense, when you depend on God and you know that all your good things come from him, there's no anxiety in that. You don't worry about the things that are provided for you by an all-powerful God. And when he tells you not to worry about these things, don't be anxious for these things. Oh, those are, that's what Brother Frank read us earlier. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day. Is its own trouble. And boy, that was never true word spoken. We have enough trouble today. We don't need to worry about tomorrow. And the more you depend on God for everything, the more you recognize that all good things come from him. And he's the one who sustains you. And it's not you. Then when tragedy happens, when you lose your job, when the bills come due, when something terrible happens, then the anxiety is not near. Of course, you're going to have anxiety when those things happen. But it's not nearly as strong as it is if you are depending on yourself. Because then you start to worry about it. You're either worrying because you don't have things. Or if you have things, you're worried that somebody's going to try to take them away from you. So anxiety comes in on either side no matter which way that you're looking for. One other thing that I want to bring out about this, and that is that dependence. If, if, if you don't think you need God, and, and trust me, there are people within the church who, who actually think this way, but without question, it is the view of the culture. The, the culture pats itself on the back entirely. And what they don't realize is that they are under God's common grace. God has taken care of them even though they don't show him any appreciation or any acknowledgement. Earlier in Luke, Jesus says, For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. In Psalm 145, The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. But if you know where your good things come from, if you ask him every day for your sustenance and he provides that sustenance, and then you are going to thank him. And thankfulness is a huge part, brothers and sisters, of the Christian experience. God wants to be thanked. And, and, and the more you depend on him and the more you, you say, Lord, would you please provide my needs? Then the more you are going to turn to him with thanksgiving. <laughs> um, one other thing. I know I've already said that. I'll probably say it two or three times today. That I've got, you know, that's my last thought. But I have one more thought here. Um, actually, two, two thoughts. Uh, first of all, um, the Lord says, give us each day our daily bread. He doesn't say, give us each day our caviar and champagne. These are prayers of sustenance, not prayers of exorbitance. So often we pray for things that we don't need and actually would be bad for us. And when God doesn't give them to us, we shake our fist at him and say, I'm not going to believe you anymore because you didn't answer my prayer. 
Well, all he's doing is making sure that he doesn't give you something that would actually harm you. God is interested in your redeemed, sanctified heart to be more like Jesus every day. That's where he wants you to go, and that's where he builds you up towards that end. And if riches and exorbitance was given to you, guess what? Most of us would completely be sidetracked by that, like that rich young ruler. Who, who, who could not give up his money because he, he, he wanted to hold on to it. And of course, that's when Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I love the way that Proverbs put this, um, a prayer that we read in Proverbs 30. Two things that I ask of you. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. No good on either side. You know, you've heard the adage, the devil dances in empty pockets. So poverty is something that we want to work within the church to eliminate. That's what we get out of that first century church. But by the same token... The reason that the church was taking care of the needs of its congregation is because those who had means were not hoarding them, asking for more. They were actually giving them to the good of the kingdom. One last thought, and that is that when Jesus was being tempted by the devil in the desert, he quoted the Old Testament by saying, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, therefore, it's not just asking for daily bread. It is also asking for the bread of life constantly to be provided to us. Just as Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, feeding her soul. That prayer, that petition is that God would indeed feed our souls on a regular basis, day in and day out. Well... Turn our attention now to the next of the great petitions. Look in verse 4. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. A very, very powerful statement. It has been said that without bread we die. It has also been said that without forgiveness we spiritually die. We cannot live without forgiveness. And so therefore, we need to dive into this just uh, a little bit deeper. Several things I want to remind you at the outset. First of all, as we read earlier um, in Psalm 51, who are all of our sins against, every single one of them, no matter what they are, our sins against God. That's what David says. Now, he's just had an affair with Bathsheba, and he has just killed her husband. And yet... His sins are not against them. Ultimately, they are against God. And so, therefore, a sins against an eternal being that is perfectly holy like God are egregious sins. So, all of our sins are against God. Now, when Jesus tells us as part of our prayers, which are repetitive prayers, constant prayers... When Jesus says those things, what he is basically saying is every single day you need to pray this prayer. Just like you're praying for sustenance and food, you need to ask for forgiveness. What does that say? If Jesus tells you every single day to ask for forgiveness, what is the sort of backhanded implication there? Every single day you need forgiveness (laughs) because you're a sinner. And no matter how good you are, you're going to constantly continue to sin against your father. So therefore, continually ask for forgiveness. That is hugely significant. Now, let's just put this into its context a little bit. Okay, we just read that Jesus says for us to address the prayer as father. An intimate, loving, compassionate kind of relationship with God. And then he goes right on and he says that, 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 that God is hallowed, that he is holy, that he is above us, that he is unapproachable, as Paul says. He lives in that unapproachable light. How on earth am I supposed to have a relationship with that God when I am sinful and he cannot look upon my, my sinfulness? How is it possible that that is going to happen? So all of this begins to come into the idea of being forgiven. 
So it has to be a forgiveness that is part of this. This is why forgiveness is so important. This, that's why I think Jesus includes it in the prayer and doesn't include other things like humility or like justice or, or like any, in mercy or any of the other things that are just as, imp- I mean, are very important, but they seem to be all wrapped up in the idea of forgiveness, that we pray for forgiveness. And this is an important uh, 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 a part of our Christian growth. Now, if Jesus says, pray every day, pray like this, ask the Lord for forgiveness. Well, on the one hand, it states that you need forgiveness. But on the other hand, what's the logical extension? If he tells you to ask your father for forgiveness, what does that mean? It means that forgiveness is available. That forgiveness is continually available. That no matter how many times you pray, you can go to your father and you can ask for forgiveness and he will grant it. Now, you you see, this is where my language of prayer starts to kick in. I'm not going to tell you this is what Luke meant. I'm not going to tell you this is what Jesus meant, but this is what happens to me. I cannot say, forgive my sins without thinking about the one who made that possible. I cannot possibly make that prayer. Please forgive me of my sins without thinking, well, how are my sins forgiven? And all of a sudden I have a third image of Jesus hanging on that torturous cross with my sins upon him. I drove those nails in. God pouring his wrath down upon him, paying for the sins that I should have paid for. That's what happens. And when that begins to happen, my heart just begins to overflow with thanksgiving and praise and glory to God. Literally, my heart begins to sing with a language all of its own. All brought about by the idea that I am forgiven. I am atoned for. I will not pay for those sins. I can stand in the presence of a holy God without those sins held against me. That's the language of prayer, brothers and sisters. That's, what, that's the reason Jesus is so concise. It's not just these words. It's not just mindless repetition. It's what the words mean, and it's what it unleashes within us. The understanding of God's entire plan of redemption throughout the ages so that we indeed might be redeemed and saved. Well, along with this idea of forgiveness... I believe, once I said, I said earlier, I, I don't think this is something that you can go through that you're totally disengaged with. And sometimes people say this so flippantly. Oh, forgive my sins. <laughs> well, did you ever think about what those sins were? Have, have you owned up to them? Have, have, have you visited them? Do you recognize what you've done? That's the reason that part of asking for forgiveness carries with it the implication of confession. And repentance. That I, I, I'm sorry. I have this horrible, godly sorrow for my sins. In fact, the Bible commands us. It's not very silent on this. When it tells us that we are to um, uh, confess our, our sins before him. Um, and... That's, we get that in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Once again, David, who seemed to be constantly in need of forgiveness in Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Then he adds that little word, Salah, at the end of that that kind of tells us, you just pause and you just think about that. You think about how confession cleanses the soul. How important confession is when we go to the Lord and we say, like David said in Psalm 38, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sins. There's a godly sorrow. Brothers and sisters, there's a progression that we as Christians are able to make. Yes, we're always going to sin. And when we sin, we sin against God. And we know that we sin against God. And that is the reason in our redeemed hearts we are mortified over that sin. There is a godly sorrow. It hurts us 
to have sinned against God. But we take that sin and we take it to the Lord and we lay it on the altar at the foot of his cross and we ask for forgiveness and God is faithful to forgive us and we do it with the holy intention of turning around and never sinning again even though we will. We know that we will because we are fallen but we have a a, a desire for righteousness. Just as Jesus told that woman caught in, ad- in, in adultery, go your way and sin no more. There's a, a desire to turn it around. And then we walk away from that altar, brothers and sisters. And if you carry that sin with you, that is a sin in and of itself. And the devil wants you to continually take that sin off the altar that is bathed in the blood of Jesus Christ and carry it around like baggage for the rest of your life. When we confess our sins and repent of those sins and put them at the feet of Jesus, they're forgiven. They're done. They're history. You don't take those sins with you except to learn from them. So confession and repentance also a major part of the grace that we ask for when we ask for forgiveness. But there's another grace that we ask for. And that is the grace to forgive those who sin against us. Those who are indebted to us. Jesus puts it this way. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Notice the way he words that. That's very interesting. Notice that that's not a command. Like thou shalt forgive others who sin against you. Now other places it is a command. But here Jesus presents it almost As if it's understood. Almost in a matter of fact way. As if there's no question. (laughs) You know because of the great grace that you have been given. That you are going to forgive those who sin against you. It's almost as Jesus is saying this. Since you are so freely forgiven by my cross work. Since the Holy Spirit has redeemed your soul. No merit of your own. Because the sovereign father has chosen you from all eternity past to be his. Because I hung on a cross with your sins upon me and paid an eternity for each one of them. Because you have been so completely and graciously forgiven. Certainly you're not going to hold anything against your neighbors. And I think the language that he uses kind of backs that up. When he says the petition to forgive our sins, he uses a Greek word, hamartia, for sins. It is a sin that is a word that talks about egregious sin. It it, is kind of a combination of of what the the Hebrews kind of had a variety of different ways they looked at sin. There were sins that were simply falling short of the mark. There were sins consciously turning to the right or the left of the mark. And then there were the worst sins that were actually twisting and turning the mark to set it your your own standards. Well, they're all kind of wrapped up in Hamartia. And we also talked about the fact that our sins were not against human beings in the ultimate sense, but they are against God, who is eternal, who is infinite, who is absolutely holy. And so therefore, he uses the word debts rather than the word hamartia when he talks about sins that other people have done against you. Now, he's not talking about financial debts there. He's talking about every kind of debt, every kind of transgression, every kind of sin. Anything that anyone does against you is wrapped up in that idea of debts. And what he is basically saying is your sins are against a holy God and their sins are against you and I forgave you and you're not forgiving them. That's unheard of. You know, it does matter who you sin against, right? You slap me in the face, you might get slapped back. I know I'm supposed to turn the other cheek, but that, you know, it it all depends on how big you are, right? But if you slap President Biden in the face, you're going to go to jail. Now, exactly the same process, but it matters who you are. You, you, You go to jail for that, hitting the president in that way. And so think about the difference between the sins people do to us and the sins that we do to God. There's no comparison. And and Jesus is just taking it for granted. Surely, you're not going to hold anything against anybody else. 
Well, there are other places in Scripture where this is not just a suggestion or taken for granted, but it is a direct command. In fact, it is sprinkled all throughout the Scriptures that we are to forgive those who sin against us. Perhaps one of the most poignant is that parable that Matthew tells, uh, Jesus tells in Matthew, of the, the wicked steward. You remember that? You remember the steward who owed his boss a gazillion dollars? I mean, impossible that he could ever pay that amount off. And his master forgives him and forgives the debt. And then one of his fellow servants owes him a couple of bucks. And he chokes him and throws him into debtor's prison until he could pay. Well, you may remember what the master said when he found out in anger. His master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And I think if Jesus was here, he would kind of pause and look around you and look in your eyes when he says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I mean, this is a a major command. This is something that God wants us to do. And I think so much of, 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 our, uh, of our own worldliness is wrapped up in our inability or our refusal to forgive those who sin against us. Jesus said this is something that you do continually. You remember the discussion that he had with Peter? Well, Luke reports it this way. Pay attention to yourself, Jesus says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So therefore, to forgive is is a vital part of the prayers that we ask. And we actually are asking, in a sense, for the grace to do that. One last thing. Well, once again, I think two last things. Um. In, in, in a sense, we're asking for grace here because we know that we fight an enemy and that there's a difference between our redeemed souls and our fallen flesh. Your redeemed souls know something, brothers and sisters. What Jesus just said, forgive your brother seven times in a day if that's what's necessary, if they repent and truly repent and confess. Okay, there, there, there's no carrying around that anger, but you know something, sometimes your body doesn't know that, and your, and your enemy, the devil, knows how susceptible you are to this. And so you might be going along, and you may just see a billboard, you may hear a song, you may see something, and all of a sudden, some 20-year-old transgression just pops back into your mind. And before you know it, you are seething and fuming over something that has happened long time ago. And the devil laughs because that's one of his greatest tricks. That's the reason the process of sanctification is so important because through sanctification, our minds and bodies begin to learn what our redeemed souls already know. And the prayers that we are given here are prayers of sanctification. One last thing, and that is... And this happens all the time, especially when my counseling of married or singles, uh, post-marriage, post-divorce, is that to forgive is to liberate yourself. As long as you hold a grudge against someone, as long as you hold a transgression in your heart with anger and bitterness, that person owns you. You're a slave, literally, to that person. I see it so many times, especially in marriages, where one spouse has been just horrible to the other one and has left them and gone off and has another spouse and is doing perfectly fine, has a whole bevy of children and is prosperous and everything in the world is going fine. And here's this poor person devastated and broken who cannot let what that person did to them go. That person's gone and they're happy as the lark. They don't think about it twice, the things that they did. All those, there's no repentance in them. They're not thinking about anything and it is not until that person forgives that they can finally let that go there's such liberation in forgiveness so much of what Jesus is teaching us here are things that are good for us there's liberation when we forgive well that brings us to our final um, petition and lead us not into temptation a couple of things that Jesus is not saying here Right? First of all, Jesus is not saying that God 
tempts us. That, that just is not even a consideration. James clearly states that for us. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So let's just kind of move that out of discussion. God never tempts us in any way, form, or fashion. The second thing that this Jesus is not saying is a little bit more, more of a nuance. Because the word for temptation is also the word that is quite often translated as testing. In fact, James himself, in the same uh, chapter, talks this way. He says, Count it all joys, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The same word, okay? But he's not talking there about temptations. He's talking about testing. And testing is a good thing. And God leads us into that a lot. So some people want to take this and say, well, what Jesus means is lead me not into testing. Well, actually, that can't be what Jesus is saying. Because what Jesus would be saying then is to pray for something, pray against something that is God-ordained and is good for you. Remember, James just said that testing is what brings about faith and steadfastness. Jesus would never tell you to pray against something that is going to foster and grow your faith. So therefore, what he is saying is, lead us not into temptation. Now, keeping in mind that God never tempts us, that does not mean that he doesn't lead us into times where the devil tempts us. I mean, he did the same thing to his son when he was led into the desert in Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, God doesn't tempt anyone, but he does allow the devil to tempt you so that you will be tested, so that your faith will grow. It is in a controlled environment, if you will. God's not the one who does the tempting. It's the devil that does the tempting, and let me tell you something, he's more than happy to do so. He doesn't have to be told, okay, hey, listen, go out and tempt those people. Oh, he lives for it. That's that's what he desires to do more than anything else, is to to tempt us. So basically, when Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, it is a prayer for protection. It is a prayer for protection from the wiles of the enemy. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he tells a prayer like this, he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In other words, don't let the evil one have his way with me. Protect me from his onslaught. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus put it this way, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Peter tells us that Satan is like a, Hungry lion roaming around looking for someone to devour. Job tells us that he is walking to and fro on the earth seeing who he can tempt. Revelation puts him like a a great dragon chasing the church into the desert to flood and to drown it with his river of life. Satan has every desire to destroy us. You remember what... Jesus says to Peter later on in this same book of Luke, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So that's basically what this petition is. Lord, don't leave me naked before this nefarious, malevolent being. He's far stronger than I am. Give me the armor of God to withstand his darts. Don't let me face him alone. Don't do to me what you did to Job. You remember what he did to Job. He says this, the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Oh, dear Lord, lead me not into that kind of temptation, but rather lead me in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. But I think implicit in this also is the statement that if you do, dear Lord, if you do lead me into temptation, I know that it is for my own good. And may you give me the strength to withstand. May he not have his way with me. 
May he not overwhelm me. May I not fall into temptation. There's no harm in being tempted, brothers and sisters. Jesus was tempted. The harm comes when you fall, and that's what the prayer is. Protect me from myself and protect me from the evil one. Well, let me kind of bring this together. Um, And not a summation, but just trying to articulate this as clearly as I possibly can. What we have seen is a model prayer that Jesus has presented us with. Completely concise. Only 38 words. Between last week and this week, I've probably topped over 25,000 words just trying to scratch the surface of what those 38 words talk about. That's what I talk about when I talk about this language of prayer. This language of prayer that is, it is locked away in us and is explicitly stated throughout this entire scripture that we need to know this. Our fallen minds need to know this so that it adds strength and richness and body to our prayers. Brothers and sisters, when I say that prayer has a language all of its own, I'm not talking about speaking in tongues. I'm not talking about ecstatic utterances. I'm not talking about a license for laziness. I'm not talking about some kind of meditation where your mind goes into a vegetative state and you let your soul reach out to the good side of the force. I'm not talking about any of those things. This is a language. This is knowledge. This is something that is part of your redeemed soul. You're a new creature in Christ. You have a soul. God takes the old one out and puts a new one in. And that new one has a much better idea of what God wants for you than does your fallen body process of sanctification is where your body slowly begins to understand that. So in leaving or in bringing this to a close, let me see if I can as succinctly as I possibly can to explain what I'm hoping will be the takeaway from this. Number one, when you are saved, you are given a new soul. You're cleansed. You're regenerated. God takes the old soul, the old heart of stone out and puts a new one. A new one that's capable of loving him and loving those he loves and loving the things that he loves. A heart that really desires to please him does not desire to sin. And this heart, this soul, this sanctified soul that he places in you as a receptacle for the Holy Spirit with his word written on the inside of it, this is, is, is much closer to the language of heaven what that soul needs, but it is, it is locked in this sinful body. And, and, and the body fights against it. You see, when we get saved... Our soul gets saved immediately. We're we're his. That soul is not ours. That belongs to Christ. We're new creations in him. But our bodies, sometimes our body doesn't get the message for a while. And it fights against it. So sanctification, brothers and sisters, is the gradual victory of the redeemed soul over the fallen and sinful body. Let, let, Let me repeat that. That's a very simplified statement of, of, what's, of what sanctification is. But sanctification is the gradual victory of a redeemed soul over a fallen and a sinful body. Theologians talk about something they call the noetic influence of sin. And what that means is that when you have a, a wretched Soul that is at enmity with God. We're born with them. That's our natural inclination. None of this comes naturally to us. As David said, I was born in sin. I was conceived in sin. So that is the natural condition. And that's that heart, that soul. It, it has an influence on every aspect of who we are. All of our being. That's what we mean when we say totally depraved. That's the a concept. It doesn't mean to be the worst you can be. It means that every aspect of who you are is impacted by this fallen soul. Well, when you get a new soul, the reverse begins to happen. That's what we call sanctification. As that redeemed soul in love with God and in love with those that God loves and in love with his word begins to have a victory little by little over the sinfulness of your flesh. 
That's the process of sanctification. Now, you are not sanctified, brothers and sisters. As I said, this is not something that comes naturally. It is not some mystical thing that happens. It is not getting in touch with the force. It is not some kind of way that you're inundated by it. You don't go and lie on the graves of holy people to absorb their righteousness. You don't work yourself up into a frenzy so that you can be righteous in this way. It is something that is learned. A heart is changed. The soul that lives forever is changed. It is God's soul, but your body needs to learn it. That's the process of sanctification. And we do it through what are called the means of grace. Now, in a reformed sense, as I said, the means of grace are not the way you're saved. It's the way you're sanctified. And here Luke has given us two valuable images. Mary at the feet of Jesus absorbing his word. You don't have Jesus in front of you, but you do have his word. And so to spend in time in your life inundating yourself with the word of God, reading it, studying it, memorizing it, meditating on it, expositing it, being involved with it in every single way, let it guide and direct you. The language of prayer is in this word. It is not some mystery and you don't make it up yourselves. And the more you know it by studying the word, the more your soul is unleashed so that you can articulate What your soul knows, but you don't have the words for. The second means of prayer is Jesus on the top of that mountain praying all night long. Because that is a way that we grow in Christ. Now there's other means of grace. There are the sacraments. There's worship. There's Christian service. There's global diaconate. There's many things that we are engaged with that are part of our sanctification. But the primary three are the word of God, prayer to God, And the sacraments that Jesus has put in place. So dear brothers and sisters. I leave you just with this prayer. If you will. May you dedicate yourself. And then again this is for Christians. May you dedicate yourself to the means of grace. From now to the end of your life. For your own sanctification. But primarily. To achieve what you were made to do. Which is the glory of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I know there's a lot of words for just 38 that you speak. But you also know that we've just barely scratched the surface of what the implications of this are. Because we realize that this is the Christian life. You have shown us in your word what you're like, the place you live, what you've prepared for us, the way to treat each other, the way to treat you. It's all there. We just don't have the language to articulate it. Even though our soul knows it, we need to learn from your word how to pray. And so, Lord, I I just pray that for this congregation, those who might listen on the Internet, that you would bless them with a heightened realization of the necessity of turning to you for their own edification, but mainly for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.